Four weeks ago, we started this journey into the book of Ephesians, and I said to you at that time, if you would commit to four weeks of, of hanging in there, staying with it every week, and bringing your Bible and taking the notes and, and looking at what we were studying, that 2013 could be your best year ever. Without exception, if you really grasp what your identity is in Jesus. Today's the culmination of those four weeks to really put the pieces together of what we've looked at in the last three, that you were chosen in God, that you were redeemed in him, and that your destiny is in him. And those three come together this morning as we look at Ephesians chapter two together because what we're really looking at here is our identity in Jesus. Your identity is not in your checkbook. It's not in your house. It's not in your social circle. It's not even in your resume. Those are all good things. But your true identity, if you're a believer in Jesus, your real identity is in Jesus. And the fact of the matter is the church is just far too easily pleased. Our, our spiritual center of gravity is just too low. We're, we're just willing to accept that we're saved, but we forget what else he has in store for us. What I want you to see this morning is what else he has in store for you beyond the salvation, beyond the fact you know you're chosen, you're redeemed, your destiny is in him. The next component is what we're going to study this morning. Before we do that, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Father, our, our heart is admittedly heavy this morning uh, for Gail and for her family and uh, the, the tragedy of what happened with Chet, but it didn't catch you by surprise, Father. We know that you're the sovereign God and that you've accomplished purposes through Chet's life. We thank you, Father, for bringing him to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, that we can stand here in confidence today and say that he is with you. But God, that doesn't take away the hurt, so we ask that you would be the God of all comfort for Gail and for her family, for the whole New Hope family, especially those who were closest to Chet. Very much enjoyed his presence. God, for us right now in this moment, while we're here, we ask that you would speak to us. I ask, Father, that you would remind us again of our identity in you, and that you would speak to every single man and woman and child and student in this auditorium, that you would remind us of our identity and that you want to speak to us specifically. Father, help us to stay tuned into you this morning and not be distracted. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So true story. I'm only going to give you part of it. I'll give you the rest of it later. True story. A woman living in the area goes to visit a nursing home on a regular basis, and over a period of weeks, she comes across an individual, an elderly man, who's in a wheelchair, can't really help himself much. He's dependent upon others to bring him his meals. She sees him in the hallway, and he looks visibly angry, upset, frustrated, whatever synonym you want to with it. And she approaches him and says, is there a problem? Is something wrong And in a very thick Hebrew accent, he says, is something wrong? Yes, something is wrong. I cannot eat this. She said, what's the problem? The problem is I am a Jew. I cannot eat this. She says to him, 
what would you like? I would like some soup. We're going to leave him in the hallway for just a few minutes. I leave him in that chair. We'll come back to that story so that you can see how she interacted in his life. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. What we're going to see as we start out with verse 1, that we're moving from eternity past, all those things that God did for us when he predestined us, into the present, right into 2013, and we have described for us the process of what God has done to draw men to himself and how he makes himself known. So it starts out with verse 1 this way, Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Right away, you see that we're not only going to be talking about who we used to be, we're going to be talking about Satan. We're going to be talking about Lucifer and the demons this morning. Because Paul sums it up in those first three verses, what's really going on? Uh, Let me show you, I'm going to break it down on the screen for you so you see the actual Greek language um, in the way that this is translated. You were is actually you being, in the original language, you being dead by reason of your trespasses. Well, what's a trespass? Three Greek words for you this morning, here's the first one, periptoma. And periptoma is actually a, a willful departure from the things that you know you're supposed to do. Nobody willingly, um, nobody unwillingly trespasses in most cases. There's no trespassing sign up on someone's property. You see the sign, but you go through it anyways. That's paraptoma. It's a willful deviation, a side slip, moving off the path. So that's what he's talking about with trespass. What we understand is, according to what Paul's saying here in verse 1, is man does not become spiritually dead. We were born spiritually dead. It's our very nature. In other words, the first time you stole a cookie out of your mom's cookie jar and then lied about it, the first time you took a quarter from your dad's desk or you lied to your grandfather, that didn't make you a sinner. You were by nature born into sin. Born into sin because that's who we are because of what Adam did and what Eve did. It, it, it brought death upon humanity. That's why God said to Adam, don't eat the fruit of that tree, and if you disobey me in the very day that you do it, you're going to die. And so Lucifer shows up on the scene and says, don't listen to him. You won't die. That's not what really the story is. God knows that you're not going to die. Well, indeed, we experience spiritual death, and that's the presence, the condition of every human since the fall of man. Now, here's the truth. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, what we're talking about is your past condition, It is not your present condition. It is the present condition of everyone else who stands separated from God because they've never followed Jesus Christ. So spiritually dead, but yet physically alive. That means, according to the Bible, people all around us are dead to God. God doesn't make sense to them. They're dead to spiritual life. They're dead to truth. They're dead to righteousness. They're dead to real happiness. And they're dead to true peace. Now, I checked with a few medical doctors here just to make sure that I was right when I said this, but this is what I understand. The indication of physical death is the inability to respond to stimulus. That's, that's the indicator. You could poke a person and prod a person, and they, they don't respond. So a physically dead person cannot respond to light 
or to sound or to smell or to taste or to pain. They're totally insensitive to their surroundings. They have no stimulus reaction. In the same way, a spiritually dead person goes through the motions of life, but they don't possess life. There's no life within them. That's what Paul's telling us. So he uses two words. Here's your second Greek word. He used trespass first, periptoma. Here's the second word, sin, because of hamartia. And hamartia is this, the offense or missing the mark. This definition is always used of someone when they went out hunting. In the early days, ancients would go out with a bow and arrow. And when they would go hunting for game in the field, a man would stand with his bow, draw back on the string, and release the arrow. But if the arrow fell short of its mark and didn't reach its target, that's hamartia. That's the word for sin in the Greek language. Falling short. That's why Paul wrote what he did in Romans 3.23. All have sinned, have fallen short of the glory of God. That's where that comes from. The word sin means falling short. So in its most basic sense, sin is failing to glorify God. Now, sin manifests itself in many different forms to many different degrees, but the state of sin has no degrees whatsoever. All sin falls short. I'm gonna say it this way. Not all men are as evil as they could be. But all men have fallen short and failed to measure up to God's standard. That means the mass murderer is just as guilty of sin as the person in the grocery store buying food for their family who stands apart from God and has no relationship with Him. We're all guilty of sin. So God's standards is this. Look, look with me on the screen at Matthew 5.48. This is Jesus saying this. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, you look at that and say, what? How? How is that possible? How can we be perfect in God's eyes? Because what we're understanding here from what Paul's saying is we don't measure up, we fall short, so we stand separated. Well, that's the truth of Scripture. You can't do it on your own. It's not possible. It requires the blood of Jesus in order for you to be seen by God as holy. That's why the good Helpful, kind, caring person needs salvation just as much as the person who's the mass murderer sitting on death row. This is the way it was described for me in Bible college, and I won't forget this image. Think in terms of a river, a very wide river, and you're standing on the bank of the river, and around you and surrounding you are young people, children, all the way up to aged adults, and the river is a mile wide. And everyone is told that if you can cross the river by jumping across it, you will obtain salvation. So children, they run and they jump as far as they can and perhaps they can make it two or three feet. Uh, maybe there's an athlete among the crowd and they run and they jump and they can go 20, 25 feet. But they still fall short. They can't jump a mile across the river. See, in our eyes, the standard is, wow, that athlete, he really did well. He's better than everyone else because look how far he jumped. Well, he still fell well short of the goal. See, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, according to Paul, what we're being told here is we're dead. Dead, dead, dead. Resuscitation is impossible. Now, before we go on to verse 4, I want you to look at this phrase, the prince of the power of the air, because in verse 2, he wants us to know who Satan really is and the role that he plays, because as we approach chapter 6, 
You're going to see how the forces of evil really play against us. So in verse 2, it says the prince of the power of the air. Well, who's the prince? That's Lucifer. Lucifer was his pre-fall name before he fell. And when he fell, his name was changed to Satan. And Satan, as a fallen angel, is the leader of the fallen world of demons, those fallen angels. So we're told he's the prince of the power of the air. The word power is dunamis in the Greek language. Dunamis, that's the name associated with demons. So he's the prince of the demons of the air. What's the air? That's the sphere that we cannot see that we're surrounded by. We're told that we're surrounded right now in this room, outside this room, all of planet Earth. There's an invisible sphere that we cannot see in which fallen angels exist and holy angels. And apparently, as we're going to learn in chapter 6, they're doing battle with each other. So what we understand is this prince of the power of the air and the the air over which he has this control is the place where demons move. And that's where the influence of anger and lust and selfishness and greed and bloodthirsty activities come from. They occupy this sphere and they influence mankind. So man is influenced by his sinful nature which he's born into sin, and now he's influenced also by this prince of the power of the air. So that's why he says, by nature, we're children of wrath because most of the world likes to think of themselves as being children of God. You listen to news commentators say it all the time, well, we're all children of the same God. Well, I'm here to tell you, according to Scripture, people who stand apart from God because they're not in Jesus, they're called children of wrath. They're characterized as sons of disobedience. So that's why he says this statement. Look on the screen. You formerly walked that way. You formerly lived that way in verses 1 and 3. That's that manner of life. It means you walked in that kind of attitude. So before God made you alive, you were deeply affected by evil. Evil that surrounds you, the ways of this world, evil of the things that are inside us we're born to, and evil because of satanic influence that's in this world around us. No wonder unsaved people are so disobedient to God. They totally are surrounded by all these things influencing him. These these three forces, the three enemies of God, constantly affect these individuals. So here's what Paul's doing. He's drawing this really sharp contrast, saying, here's what you looked like before Jesus. Here's what you look like now as you stand in Christ. You were once, but now you are. And any of you guys here that have been to the Wednesday night study, you know when we talked to Chet, it was an amazing thing to listen to him talk as a transformed man because he talked about what he used to be like before he discovered Jesus and what he's like now. It was just a fascinating thing to see how God had changed him exactly the way we're describing here. So Paul's not trying to make us feel horrible. What he's trying to do is help us understand our previous condition and the fact that God has been magnified through the wonder of his mercy. Look with me now at verse four because he says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Here's your last Greek word for today, and it's the word plusios. And plusios means to be rich, okay? Superabundant wealth. I don't know who the wealthiest person you know is, but the, apparently the two of the wealthiest individuals on planet Earth, um, we would say uh, Bill Gates would probably be one of those two, and then Warren Buffett would probably be the other one, the second one, at least that we know of in the United States. But even those guys don't measure up with their wealth to J.P. Morgan, J.P. Morgan, who lived in the early 1900s, do you know that if you took all of the wealth of the 40th, 40 wealthiest people in the world living today and combined their assets, 
they would still not match J.P. Morgan's wealth at the peak of his career. That's an amazing amount of wealth. Yet, J.P. Morgan's wealth could still be calculated. This definition here says God is so plusios. It's without measure. You can't measure what God has. And what are we told he's rich in? Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Well, that's very consistent with what we learn about our God in the Old Testament. Because we see when Moses shows up and Moses begins talking to God, he says to God, I, I want to be able to describe you. I want to see you. So Moses is on Mount Sinai. And God says, you know what, Moses? I'm going to go one step further. I'll do more than have you see me. I'm going to describe myself to you as I pass by you. I'm going to go right in front of you. So he takes Moses. You can read about this in Exodus 36. But he takes Moses, puts him on the side of the mountain in the cleft of the rock, we're told, which is kind of like a cave, And God says, Moses, I'm going to cover your eyes over as I pass by because if you see me, you'll burst into flames because no man can see God and live. So I'll cover your eyes and as I pass by, I will declare all my goodness. Do you know what God says about himself? The Lord, the Lord God, abounding in mercy. That's how he describes himself. The Lord is patient, kind, long-suffering, abounding in mercy. So that's our God. So mercy, you've got it in your notes this morning. My, My definition for it, and it's not original to me, is that mercy is this. He does not give us what we do deserve. Mercy, we don't get what we do deserve. That meaning that punishment of eternal death. Go with me to verse five. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So above all else, a dead person needs to be made alive. So Jesus Christ did not just revitalize you if you're a believer this morning. He actually performed CPR on you. He breathed the breath of God into you and brought you back to life and gave you new life. You were dead. Now Paul's describing what God has done for every single Christian. Romans 6 says that what he's describing here is called the walking in the newness of life. Uh, I can identify with this because I talk to individuals who are new to Jesus, and for the first time in their life, the Bible begins to make sense. There's individuals that are new to our church that have recently come to Jesus, and they will say to us, for once in my life, finally, the Bible is making sense. The pistons are firing on all cylinders. I can put the pieces together. And for the first time ever, they find themselves wanting to leave the old things behind, the old way of life, because there's a new nature within them. God's brought new life. We're told that this happened even when we were dead. You see that right there? Even when we were dead, at that very moment, God made us alive in Jesus. So being made alive in Christ means we've been delivered from the prince of the power of the air. We've been delivered from these principalities and powers And Paul just tags on that parenthesis at the end. It's by grace you were saved. Isn't it interesting that he just makes that a little bit of a whisper? Go with me to verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now that tells me my salvation has a purpose. You see that? Your salvation has a purpose. You were raised up with him and you were seated 
with him. So not only are we alive to righteousness, not only are we raised up through his resurrection, but we get to share in something. We get to share in his glory according to that verse. You don't look convinced. Now, it's 11.56 in the morning on a Sunday, and you've just been told you get to share in the glory of the king of the universe. That's an amazing statement. We're told that there's a couple of verbs here, a couple of action words, and those verbs are raised and seated. Those are action words. You've been raised up with him, and you've been seated with him for this purpose, so that we're told it's not only for our benefit, that God has a great purpose in your salvation. Look with me again and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches. So when you see that God's gonna do something, he's gonna show, you're gonna say, to who? He's, he's showing us to who? Well, the angels, the fallen angels, the holy angels, everyone who's in heaven, the creatures around the throne. I want you to go to the book of Revelation with me this morning. I'm not gonna put it on the screen. If you take your Bible and flip over to Revelation chapter seven, I'm gonna give you a glimpse into the future of something that we're told is going to happen as a result of God bringing life back to you. Revelation chapter seven and verse nine If you don't have a Bible with you, it's the last book in the Bible, and you can grab one of those pew Bibles that are in the rack in front of you. The last book in the Bible, easiest book in the world to understand. (laughs) And it says that we're going to be put on display, right? We just saw that. He might show, so go with me to Revelation 7, verse 9 says this. John's looking into the future. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, and all the angels were standing around the throne." and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What's going on there? Because the redeemed of the Lord, standing in their white robes, are proclaiming what God had done to bring life to them, All of heaven then falls on its faces and begins to worship God. So what we're told here that he might show his amazing grace, he might show the surpassing riches, we're talking here about God putting us on display so that all of creation will recognize we are trophies of God's grace. We're we're displaying God because he's displaying us. So the implications are really, really clear here. Since we are transferred into this new dominion of Christ, we do not have to collapse under the activities of the evil one around us. The power of God which raised Jesus from the dead, 
which brought new life into us is the same power that's available to us as we live in this world every day, no matter how big your struggle is, no matter how dramatic your week has been, no matter how hard the events are that affect you tomorrow, you have this resurrection power within you. And so as you take your stand against the devil's schemes and as we struggle against the spiritual forces of evil, we recognize the power that raised us out of death, the same power energizes every part of our living. So you were not raised in order to remain in the morgue. You were raised to live in power through Jesus Christ. And many Christians miss this. United with Christ means we've been exalted with him. You share in his future glory. It's as though it's already happened. It's just that you're here on planet earth right now, but eventually you will stand with him. So do we look to the rest of the world as though we're people who are clothed in immense power? Or do we look like people who are still in the morgue, surrounded with grave clothes, Let's go on to verse 8, because Paul sums it up in a mar- just a magnificent way. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it says right there that I've been saved through my faith. Now, I told you two weeks ago, I, I defined faith as my reaction to God's action. Our, our response is faith But we're told here, even that is not of ourselves. I may respond to God's activity in my life and his action on my behalf, but even that's not from me. We're told it's a gift from God. Do you know that faith is nothing that you do in your own power? Because you can't conjure up enough faith. It's not possible for you. That's what many people misunderstand. Faith is not of yourself. We don't have adequate power within ourselves. If you have faith in Christ, it's because God gave you the gift of faith. God would not want us to rely on it if we had the power within ourselves on our own to conjure up faith. Why wouldn't he want us to do that? Because if we could do that on our own, salvation would be by our own works. We'd be the one manufacturing the power, and we'd have some way to boast in it. But Paul says here, we don't have any reason to boast. Faith was given to us as a gift, even that. Let me put it this way for you. If someone chokes or drowns, let's say they've they've drowned in a lake and the body is brought into the shore and laid on a beach and someone knows how to give CPR among the crowd that gathers around him, that body that's laying on the shore is completely helpless. There's nothing that he can do. He can't respond to any of the stimulus. Can't respond to anybody saying, come on, come on, get up. Can't hear. There's, There's no life there. So if this person ever hopes to breathe again, it's because someone else started him breathing. Faith is the exact same way. A person who is spiritually dead cannot make a decision towards Christ because they have no life within them unless God brings the breath of life, the gift of faith to them as a gift. So this is what faith really is for me. Faith is inhaling that breath that God's grace supplies. I'm totally dependent upon him even to bring it to me. And here's the paradox. We have to actually act. We have to respond and receive it. Because if we don't receive it, our lungs are not gonna get inflated. I know a lot of people who have DNR tags on them, do not resuscitate. 
I've talked to individuals even this week that said, I'm good. No, I have no interest in that. You don't have to talk to me about God. I'm not interested. Well, they got a DNR tag on them. They don't want to be resuscitated. They're not interested in God bringing them life. So here's what this is really telling us. Human effort means nothing. I can't do this. The result is no one should boast. So that means church membership, taking communion, getting baptized, reading the Ten Commandments and trying to follow them. None of those get you saved. None of those bring you into relationship with Jesus because he did it all. So Paul sums it up this way in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now I'm told that good works have a really great deal to do with living out our salvation. Matter of fact, Jesus said it this way, John 15, 8. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You know what good works in your life do for you? They prove that you belong to Jesus. James 2, if you get a chance to read that later today, you'll see in James 2.17, he actually says that if you don't have works in your life, you're an illegitimate child. You don't belong to God because faith without works is dead. Now, we're not saying that works earn you salvation, but works are an evidence that you've got some fruit in your life. God's working in you. You're alive. That's why he said, we are his workmanship. And understand, this is the last verse we're looking at this morning, but this is not a PS. It's not postscript. This is the culmination. It's the outcome of everything we've looked at in the first nine verses, summed up in one sentence. You are God's work of art. And he's putting you on display for all the world to see what it looks like for God's grace and mercy to be alive in someone. So he says, you're saved for good works. Now, too many people think that salvation is the only important experience. And I'm here to tell you this morning, they are wrong, wrong, wrong. Salvation is the pinnacle of recognizing what God did for you. But it is not the only experience. So many people are content to remain in the morgue, and they forget what Jesus does for them. Think about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He stands outside that cave, that tomb. Lazarus is inside. He's been dead for four days. He's wrapped in grave clothes, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man gets up and walks out of the tomb. What's the first thing that Jesus says? Go over and take those grave clothes off him. This man's no longer dead. He's alive. Get him out of the grave clothes. See, a living person cannot function when he's wrapped and surrounded by death. Many people have been risen in Christ, but they still live as though they're bound up in the grave clothes, and they refuse to meet what God has for them for a purpose and a plan instead of wearing the grace clothes that God put on every one of us. They're content to stay in those grave clothes. So how does this flesh out in your life, and when Will it flesh out in your life? Well, to live, to be fully alive in Jesus requires that he be allowed to be active in us and that he be allowed to be put on display. How does that happen? I'm gonna tell you the first most important thing is that you spend time in God's word and you spend time in prayer because apart from those two things, you're gonna be doing it on your own and God wants you to spend time reading his word, what he had to say to you and spending time in prayer. That's the process of sanctification, Big church word, 
You're justified immediately when you believe in Jesus, but you're sanctified over a period of time, and that happens as you read God's word and as you pray. And as a result of those two put together, you act. You act upon God's power. God's power through us gives us an amazing sense of purpose. What does that look like for you? That might mean signing up to go on the Kenya trip. That might mean signing up to support someone financially who's going on the Kenya trip. That might mean buying diapers for the single moms who are struggling and we have these diaper drives. It it might mean any manner of things. You might be a force in your school system, finding some way to serve within that, helping people to identify the grace of God is clothing me. I'll tell you this morning, if you feel alone and you feel crushed in your spirit and maybe even a sense of despair this morning, You surrender yourself and open yourself up to allow God to work through you and serve others and you will discover there is so much more that he has in store for you when you allow him to use you for good works because ultimately the works that God wants to do through you is a witness to the rest of the world and it earns you the opportunity to be heard Now, here's the amazing statement that Paul ends this with. These good works which God prepared that we should walk in them. Amazing. Meaning that God has planned for your life as you walk into 2013. If you're a believer in Jesus, that verse tells me that he already pre-planned, just like he chose you and redeemed you and gave you an inheritance, He pre-planned certain things for you to do and give you a purpose and a reason for living. And right here in 2013, we're told God prepared them in advance, knowing that he wanted to work through you. So let's go back to the woman in the nursing home. She shows up every week. She comes across this man who has incredible need in his life. He's sitting in a wheelchair, and he looks angry, and so she comes up to him and says to him, what's wrong? What's wrong? Yes, sir, is there a problem? I cannot eat this food. What is the problem? I am a Jew. This is not my food. What would you like, sir? I would like some soup. Soup. I'll go to the office, and I'll ask them, if it's okay for me to bring you some hot soup. She leaves. He stays in his chair, stays in the hallway. She goes to the office and gets permission. She goes home and makes him a hot bowl of lentil soup, made kosher according to his requirements. And she brings it back to him and puts it in front of him, and he still has a scowl on his face, but he begins smiling inside. And over a period of days, day after day after day of coming to that senior home and encountering that exact same man and meeting his need every day, week three arrives, and he finally says to her, why are you doing this? She gets to explain Christ because she earned the right to be heard. And as a result of everything that she had done over three weeks, she explains Jesus and salvation and God bringing life back to a dead soul and forgiveness of sin and an eternal destiny. And he opens up his heart and he says, no one has ever told me that before. And he professes faith in Jesus Christ. 
See, even making a bowl of soup for someone can be a spiritual sacrifice and a good work to the glory of God the Father, and God will use that in your life. So I close this morning with asking you to take a personal inventory of your own life. Where are you at? Are you enjoying the life that you have in Christ? Is God magnifying himself through you? Or are you still bound by the habits of the life in the graveyard? Are you still bound up in those clothes? You need to shed those clothes and allow God to work through you, to be magnified because he has such an amazing, creative, expansive life in mind for you. That's the culmination of these four weeks. God chose you. God redeemed you. God has an inheritance for you. But while you're waiting for that inheritance, he wants to work through you so that you can lead others to him as well. I'm gonna pray for you that that would be real in your life this week. I'm gonna pray for you that you would calculate that this afternoon as you leave here. Let's pray together. Father, we we know this, that we cannot earn our salvation but we are a group of people here today who want to be a demonstration of what it means to have salvation in Christ. So Father, I ask through your church, New Hope, as you're growing this body, that we would be known in this metro area as a group of people who look like individuals who are clothed in grace and mercy and love and that there would be evidence of us because of our good works in this area. Father, we we know we can't earn it, but we want you to work through us. So we ask, Father, that you would reveal to us what you want to do. I believe for every man and woman and student in this auditorium that you have a specific purpose for them this year, and you want to work through them. God, only you know what that is, so I ask that you would reveal that. Even begin now. Begin making your will and your purpose known because they're the things that you prepared, not the things that we prepared. So, Father, make them known to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that you would empower your church as we go out to be bold for you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.